This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor, author of To Fathom the Gist, Volume 3, The Arousing of Thought. In this book, Robin demonstrates a method of reading and comprehending the contents of G.I. Gurdjieff's masterwork, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Robin was born in 1951 in Liverpool, UK. He obtained a B.S. in mathematics at Nottingham University and took up a career in the computer industry, initially writing software. From 1989 onwards, he became a technology analyst and consultant. He has thus been a writer of a kind ever since. In 2002, he was awarded an honorary PhD in computer science by Wolverhampton University in the UK. He currently resides in and works from Austin, Texas in the US. In 1988, after drifting through several work groups, Bloor met and became a pupil of Rena Hans. Rena was a one-time associate of J.G. Bennett, a student of Peter Ospensky's, and later she was a pupil of George Gurdjieff. Following Gurdjieff's death, she remained part of J.G. Bennett's group for a while. Subsequently, she formed groups both in London, where she lived, and in Bradford in the north of England, initially in conjunction with Madame Knott. She was an accomplished movements teacher and an inspirational group leader. She died in 1994 and is buried next to Jane Heap in a cemetery in North London. Robin leads a group, the Austin Gurdjieff Society in Austin, Texas. Aside from the usual movements and work activities, the group specializes in the study of Gurdjieff's writings and the study of objective science as articulated by Ospensky in In Search of the Miraculous and by Gurdjieff in the Tales. Robin Bloor, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you and a pleasure to be able to converse with you about this um, volume three of To Fathom the Gist. But before we jump into that, I'll just wanna, I just want to invite you, if there's any, anything new that uh, continuing listeners to your previous, from your previous uh, appearances on this show, um, you might want to update them on what you're, what's going on in your life, uh, in your work, etc. I invite you so to do. Okay. Well, I guess the thing to say, um, in terms of the work outside of what you would call normal work activities for the work group that um, I lead in Austin, I study, I have two lines of study, if you like. One is the um, writings of um, Gigi. And the other is objective science. And what I'm doing right now and the next book that I will publish is going to be a book on objective science. And I've not published on that before, so that will... Um, it's taking me longer than I expected is probably the best thing to say about that. And um, it was done... I didn't really 
mean to. I didn't really intend to write this book, but eventually I came to the conclusion that an awful lot of people who are in the work have almost no understanding of objective science beyond uh, a few ideas that tend to get repeated again and again and again. So I figured that it was worth investigating. Hmm. And that's what I'm doing. They'll, I expect a book to be published by kind of December. So do you, is that something that uh, maybe uh, later in the program you might be willing to talk a little more about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it is the other, I mean, you know, there are a number of things that to me personally, um, having been in the work for a long time, um, that, that I just thought didn't make any sense. And one of them was that very few people understood anything about Beelzebub's tales and Gurdjieff's writing. Uh, and it, it seemed to me that it was worth me spending time <clears throat> following specifically very um, particular lines of research, but also working with others to try and penetrate that. And the same is true of objective science. It's, it, it seems to be an area that most people abandon uh, it, almost like they took, so they looked at it for a while and thought this is too hard and moved on. Yeah, well, I, I will be uh, interested in following up, and I'll definitely, we'll come back to that topic, um, partly because I have a background in, in physics and was, you know, uh, confronted with the lack of, of understanding of anything having to do with consciousness in modern science today. And one of the things that attracted me to the fourth way work was the framing of it in a scientific or quasi-scientific way. So in, in some sense, there was a promise of a more comprehensive science, and a more comprehensive understanding of our relationship to the material realm in the work. So to the extent that that is covered under objective science, I'm very interested to uh, engage in that. Yeah, we could talk, probably talk for a lot a lot longer than we actually have got time to <laughs> I imagine so. But but why don't we start with... Uh... Well, well let, let me... Before before we start with the book, I, um, you made an interesting comment uh, a moment ago uh, about uh, the idea that um, there are... There are in, in reference to this book that we're going to talk about, the volume three of To Fathom the Gist... Um, you said that um, a lot of people don't really seem to have had the impulse or have acted on the impulse to really look into what Gurdjieff was doing with his writing. And, of course, you've written, this is the third volume, we've written two previous volumes about that, uh, which we've talked about with you before on this program. But um, I'm... The, the question occurred to me is how is it that you personally became um, motivated to really pursue this in a way that um, that you didn't see having been done by, by, by others? Was it, was it a matter of your training? Was it a matter of your um, a, a development of an inclination over time? Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, yeah, I, I, I can try and speak about that. 
there was a moment. Um, you see, I had a teacher, Rena Hans, who knew Gajeev. Uh, she was also, um, I, I would say, extremely um, well-educated in the sphere of literature. But I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that had a better literary mind than she did. Hmm. Um, certainly superior to me, but also superior to, you know, anyone I ever met at university, for example. Um, I didn't study literature, I studied mathematics, but I knew a lot of people that did study literature. And I associated with them um, a lot. So she impressed me a lot, uh, in a, a great deal. But beyond that, I once um, was talking to her about the tales and I was referring to the um, page at the beginning where Mr. Gajeev asks you to read it thrice. Um, and uh, the second um, way of reading is to read it out loud as if to someone else. And I asked Rita, uh, Rina Hands if he really meant what he said. And the question just came from the fact that I certainly hadn't attempted to do that. And, and therefore, I, I, he was asking an awful lot of the reader to actually do what he put on that page. And I didn't take it seriously, you know. So I asked Rena Hands if he meant what he'd written. And she said, and she said it in the kind of uh, impressive way that she could say things. She said, if that's what he wrote, then that's what he meant. And, and that just changed my approach to Beelzebub's tales completely. Because of the way she said it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, if it was necessary to read it in that way, um, and she said that she had done that, um, it's also necessary to read it in the third way. So it was necessary to understand, you know. So he's the third way to try and fathom the gist. Um, it is, um, I mean, first of all, it's it's quite clear. It, he didn't write to try to fathom the gist. It's to try and fathom the gist. So the, the meaning of the word try is, is not um, attempt, but the other and actually earlier meaning of the word try, which is to sit in judgment over. Or to test, right? Yeah, to test. And, and so it speaks of two efforts. Um, and it was the, the other statement that was made by Arage that this was a, um, an objective book. Uh, and the only uh, example of objective literature of our time. And the question occurred to me, how is it even possible to write um, objective literature? And the question is asked simply because the meaning of words changes. And because the meaning of words changes, how do you actually handle that 
if you want to write an objective piece of literature, how do you handle the the reality that the meaning of words changes? And there is um, there is one example of that that's just clear and shouts out loud from the book or shouts out loud to me. The title of one of the chapters is Beelzebub's Survey. Um, of, I think, the ever-shortening life of man, but it's the word survey. In the time that Gurdjieff wrote and Orage edited that book, the word survey meant to look over and survey. It didn't mean asking a lot of people their opinion. And the modern <laughs> meaning of the word survey is to ask a lot of people their opinion. So anybody that was reading that book nowadays in terms of their normal understanding of the word survey could not understand its meaning unless they realized that that word and all the words in the tales were chosen philologically on the basis of their etymology so that the meaning of those words could always be known. So I'd like to ask a couple of questions around that because we we are now diving into the subject matter of the book, uh, uh, your book, in your series of books, which is given that Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson is an objective piece of literature, how do we approach it? Or how do we actually interact with an objective piece of literature? And you, you provide a number of very concrete guidelines for how to do this. But before we get into those, I guess I want to step back because there's a concept that we've talked about both in some of our separate uh, conversations and it comes up in the book. And I think it bears on this question that you're describing, which is the distinction that Gurdjieff calls out in his writings between mentation by thought and mentation by form. And I want to ask about that partly because it speaks to the uh, problem of how you approach something. It's 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 Gurdjieff's way of describing the very problem that I think you're alluding to here. Yeah, well, it's part of the problem. <clears throat> that particular um, that, that particular set of um, knowledge, really only becomes knowledge if you see it in yourself, but it is a set of knowledge about mentation by form and mentation by thought is foundational to anybody being able to understand the communication from someone else. It, it, it's utterly foundational. Um, the problem that we run into, and, it, and it's by no means a it's by no means a trivial problem, and it has to be faced, is that most of the communications that we are involved in in our life um, are dialogue of the deaf, really. People do not listen to what each other say and have no way of understanding what each, uh, other people say. Uh, and therefore, the language that we use then it doesn't really matter which of the modern languages that we're talking about here. 
language we use is useful only for very practical physical matters. If um, I'm with you and my car has broken down, you can, with reference to various verbs and nouns, explain to me perhaps what might be wrong with it. And the two of us can agree the medium of communication and the meaning of the words. And you therefore have the ability to tell me how to fix my car if I don't know. Um, and that's uh, an extremely necessary part of um, normal language. Without that, people wouldn't be able to communicate at all. But the problem of mentation by form and mentation by thought is that mentation by form uses an entirely different language to mentation by thought. And mentation by form, everybody's language is, even if you grew up in the same family, slightly different. The meaning that you attach to words is acquired from your experiences that involves those words. And this is the meaning that most people take for pretty much every, every word that they use because they have never attempted to develop um, a, uh, a relative understanding of language. So, so that's a, so let me ask you then in contrast, because, because the, I, I get the notion pretty clearly that when I learn a word, when I even learn what, well, a word like love, let's take an abstract concept like that, that's going to be completely grounded in the experiential domain, what I'm feeling, what I'm sensing, what I'm hearing, what my quality relationships are with the people around me, uh, whether the sun is shining or not. When I encounter that, there's this whole complex of associations that lurk within me with each word that I speak, and they may be refined and modulated over time as I communicate with other people and kind of e e equilibrate with their senses of meaning. But ultimately, <laughs> the feeling that is created in me when the word love arises is going to be different than the feeling that's created in you but when the word love arises. <clears throat> Yes. I mean, that's it, basically, in, in, in a sense. I mean, it's complicated. It's not simple. Um, Gurdjieff says in the tales, very specifically, that if you hear a word that you've never heard before, you normal human beings' reaction will be they will take the meaning from the word that they've heard whose consonants is closest to the word, um, you know, the word from their memory is consonants is closest to mm. the word they've heard. Mm. In other words, they depend upon its sound to, de to deduce its meaning. But people don't stop in the middle of conversations and reach for the dictionary, or at least that's not a common phenomenon. You know, people uh, are too, let's say, identified with the conversation they're having. The, for them to do anything other than in one way or another assume that they understood when they didn't. So and, uh, a, and so, move on. So so in a way, um when I when I read the section in um volume three here um about this topic that Stuart's asking you about, what I what I got from 
reading what you had to say um, about that is is that essentially Gurdjieff is problematizing um, communication in a way that is unfamiliar to people. Yeah, that's correct. So, and that that's a necessary um, platform, if you will, from which to be able to even begin to understand what is meant by the word objective. Is that a fair, would you agree with that? Yes, the word objective itself actually deserves a lot of discussion and we can do that if you like. And let's, and let's please do. Um, but, you know, to get to anything where we would want to um, use the term objective, then we're going to have to have agreed um, on certain languages, uh, certain language mechanisms that come from mentation by thought. So let's, um, let me just, before we go there, let me just say what I mean by mentation by thought. Okay. Um, I mean, Gurdjieff decide, de defines it as being a kind of mentation where words are related to each other in a relative way. Meaning is therefore relative word to word. Um, it's in, in normal um, uh, uh, language, in various areas, they build up what are called ontologies and meaning where words are indeed connected to each other, one to another, so that one might know the meaning of these words. It's done, there are ontologies for chemistry, for biochemistry, for areas of physics and so on and so forth, for you know, quantum mechanics and so on. There are, the people build up ontologies so that they know the meanings of the word relative to each other. In most spheres, unless you are let's say, somewhat of an expert, you don't understand the terms they're using because they're not terms that are in normal, uh, common to normal language. So, you know, that is the case. They build ontologies. Gurdjieff is talking in terms of having an ontology for your normal language, uh, and particularly for the discussion of things psychological, but also for things scientific. Because if you don't have that, then you're going to get your meaning and your meaning is going to be from your subjective experience of the word and therefore the meaning that you assign and the one that I assign will not likely be the same. In fact, they may even have no relationship whatsoever. So is that to say then that um, in all and everything Gurdjieff's master work, one feature of that is the uh, liberal use of neologisms or invented words and those invented words for someone who is reading this material to, you can't, you can barely pronounce them, let alone understand what they mean. So you are forced to stop, which is part of his genius. And you offer some ways in which you can adduce kind of the hidden meaning or the intended meaning by virtue of breaking down the components of those words, which are often concatenations of words from different languages. Yeah. But, but the net effect is that there's this language that's set up over the course of that work, which seems to me to function like the ontology that you're describing. Well, we, we can say this, um, that the, the neologism, it's better not to think of neologism as just one thing, because there are a number of 
things in the um, in the tales where um, it, it's not just words that he uses, it's also names that he chooses. Mm-hmm. So the name, for instance, of the priest Abdil in, um, that he meets in the country of Tikliamish. Um, Abdil means servant of the heart. And, and that meaning comes from Arabic. Hmm. You know, and uh, if you didn't know Arabic, it's not that you would guess that. Um, so there are a number of names that are used within the tales where he's naming a place or uh, a fictional place um, or naming a person um, where the meaning of the name is not known to you and you will have to try and deduce it. The The situation within neologisms that are, let's say, words that he appears to have invented is that in all but one example that I found, he always gives you an alternative English meaning. Mm-hmm. But you discover when you break down the words that the alternative English meaning is not as informative, let's use that word, um, as the word when you understand its meaning from the way that he's constructed it. In other words, his constructions are more precise than the English renderings. And I think in um, uh, volume one or volume two, you actually um, advise the reader to go to Google Translate and try to pick apart some of these words and you can discover that there's Armenian roots that are conjoined with Russian roots that are conjoined with English roots and get a sense, as you're saying, of an intention that may not be so precisely notated by, as you say, the English rendition that he gives. Because the English rendition, usually when I read that in the book, it kind of, I'm stuck with my own associations. (laughs) Whereas... yeah. Well, let's pick, if we use an example, and perhaps the most obvious example is um, uh, the word um, being parked doll duty, because that comes up a number of times. Right, so let's, say, let's say that again for the listeners. So being park dog duty. It's Pox, P-A-R-K-T, um, dog, D-O-L-G, duty. Dolg is Russian for duty and parked is Armenian for duty. So it's being duty, duty, duty. Right? If you... When you see something happening in threes like that, one should immediately associate with the three brains. Uh, I do, anyway. Um, So one of the ways that I now kind of think of that will be, well, there's... there's, um, physical duty, emotional duty, and um, uh, thinking duty, probably the best way to to depict that. So we already have a broader kind of um, meaning for that word now that we've exploded it in in that way. But, but, you know, the, the fact that he's put three duties together and the fact that he's talking about duty, and then the fact that he's talking about being. 
And he uses being as a noun adjunct, and he uses it hundreds of times throughout the tales as a noun adjunct. We, we don't have that in our language. Those, that's the only book that I'm aware of that, that actually uses those particular constructions, being data, as opposed to data, you know. And it, again and again and again, you know, being food as opposed to food and so on. Um, so it's not just neologisms that he does, he actually creates new constructs. Um, he uses the term constate very, very frequently in the tales. It's not an English word. It, it doesn't exist in an English language dictionary. It, it does exist in a French dictionary. That's interesting because I, I could have sworn I've, I've looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. And, no, uh, I, I mean I've I've done a research. Yeah, okay. On this, and uh, he's it's, right. It's I could have. I, it's I, a I French to, French I will, word. I will pull it out, but uh, but it basically it does. It's rooted in the French word for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, given that a book was written in nineteen, well, a book was published in nineteen fifty that has the word in it. It is now by definition an English word because it's been used in an English book. But you know. It wasn't an English word when he was using it. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's an interesting idea. The the idea of constating is an important idea. Um, because it means to bring everything together. You know. Um, um, it, it, it stops us... When you use a term like that, it, it, it has you um, trying to not think in a one-dimensional way but to think that there are many different aspects to something and that the reality of something is a constatation of those aspects yeah so you i mean uh, it seems to me that what we keep returning to gurdjieff keeps wanting to stop people from thinking in the way that they ordinarily think essentially or whatever yeah, processes are, that that automatically proceed in them in that way. The, there is a question as to whether people actually do think. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it depends on how you define the meaning of that word. Right. But um, I would suspect that most people um, don't think very much at all. You know, no. because thinking. Um, I mean, it, the, um, from the Gurdjieffian definition, let's say, of the way that the thinking center works, thinking is at base um, uh, about comparison. Thinking center compares things. It compares and makes measurement. But, you know, the, the thinking center is also um, the part that asks questions because it can formulate questions. The thinking centre is the party that is able to formulate things in language. Uh, and possibly, you know, even in way sophisticated, more sophisticated languages than English, perhaps, you know, there is that part of you that does all of those things. And most people don't do any of that. I mean, they really, very rarely do. 
we very rarely ask questions or very rarely the thinking center ponders most people don't do much of that now i'm not trying to create some kind of an elite picture i'm just saying that you know things like that have to be taught either you did them because in some way or other they were part of the way that you were brought up and you, and which is the way I was brought up, and, and therefore you do this stuff. Or else you didn't have anyone to imitate, and you never do that. Or you did you do that once, but you found it was too much trouble, so you just spend your life repeating things. You don't need an opinion if you can always borrow one from someone else. So, Right. I, I mean, I, I think the a distinction that certainly comes up in fourth-way psychology is a distinction of active and passive. So there's an associative process that people undergo all the time, which is a passive process. Something hits them, an impression, a word, a, uh, you know, a thing they see on YouTube. And a pro uh, passively, that causes a uh, set of associations to unfold. Whereas when you talk about thinking, I get the impression that you're describing an active process, a process that words like conf confrontation or friction or engagement and effort of some sort are tied into. And when I'm doing that, it's a very different process because I'm really pushing against those associations and trying to come to something new that didn't exist before. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I think that's that's in the right direction is possibly the best thing to say. Is that you know is that the the ability to be um, uh, a person properly engaging the thinking part of them isn't given to everyone, and in many people, even if they can do it, they're not strong. And it's also the case that that's true in the sphere of the emotional brain and true in the sphere of the physical brain. So it, it, it's not that, that there's much unusual about this. The problem with um, talking about thinking is that there are a number of illusions that modern people have uh, acquired from their upbringing, from their reading, from whatever. Uh, and one of those illusions is that they think, you know, and along with the illusion that they have uh, unity along with the illusions that they can control their emotions along with all of the other illusions that we know um, uh, have been in one way or another described by the Gurdjieff work and by other people as well of course. So um, so this um Psychology that you're talking that you're talking about, I think I think is interesting. Um, I, I mean, it, it seems to me that that there have been attempts to, if you will, reproduce. Although I don't think that 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 was the impulse, but um, there have been um, psych, uh, psychological. There's been psychological work that that follows on the heels, if you will, of what Gurdjieff's doing, but Gurdjieff has a very different purpose, it seems to me, um, in the work that he's pointing people towards. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, um, because it, you know, you used the word constate earlier, and 
And he's trying to bring a bunch of things and realizations together and help people do the same, learn to do the same for themselves. So, so when you said that you were trained as a, as a youngster, I guess, to think in the way that you were discussing, um, for the people who don't have that training, is Gurdjieff going to be helpful, do you think? Does that, does that, does the Gurdjieff work that would engaging with um, Gurdjieff's written work actually be of utility to such people? Um, Gurdjieff, when asked about the tales, said that, you know, everyone will get something. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've taken that his words that it, it, it's worth those who wish to put effort into doing this will probably get something it's difficult to know the one of the things that is difficult to know um, is the actual impact of that book on people okay. I if we just cast that book to one side and think of other books there are a number of books that I've read that had an impact on me. They changed the way that I thought about things. Mm-hmm. Not many such books, but it's definitely the case that a book can have that impact on you. And um, the the Elzebub's Tales, I think, can have a a stronger impact, and it it may change the way not only that you think about things but the way that you feel about things and even how your uh, the moving part how your um, physical body works I think it can change it can have an impact of changing everything good you said and it, it isn't it I use it as a quote at the beginning of one of the uh, books but he just said in in this book I have buried certain bones so that Certain dogs with a great sense of smell can dig down and retrieve them. And strange thing, when they do so, they become men. You know, and so it's beyond my capabilities to know how sophisticated that book is, to know how, what its capabilities are, what its possible reach actually is. I only know that it is far and away the greatest literature produced in the last century, and possibly the greatest literature produced since the Quran. It's interesting that you um, put the Quran in that category. Um, do you feel like there was an element of that, uh, a similar kind of intentionality in that in that work, or because? It, they're not the same. It, it's. It, 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 I'm talking about levels with this, and therefore yeah. similarity between. I think the Quran is more similar to the New Testament than you would ever think of it as being similar to the um, um, Gurdjieff's tales. Um, the the Quran, to the extent that I've interacted with the Quran, and I have had some interaction with. Um, 
uh, a Shai friend I have who, who lives in Iran. I feel an immense emotionality to the Quran. Mm. It comes through in the writing, but it also, in, in some way or other, there are certain postures that are in the Quran that are um, very humble. And that they're not, I don't find anything like, I don't find the same thing in the New Testament. Hmm. Um, this is very- I, I think the Quran is, is an opinion. I think the Quran is about faith. I think that the Quran engenders some kind of faith in the way that it's written. I think it, its major appeal is to the emotional form. <clears throat> well, that's interesting to me because I've heard, I've, I've never tried to read the Quran, the ending in English. I certainly never tried to read it in the original Arabic, which I understand is the is um, extolled as the only real way to engage with it with the text. So um, it makes sense to me that that if if in fact the faith and emotional aspect is the is is the strength of the book that you would you would need to read it in the original language to have some hope of tuning into that yeah i i would guess i mean i was dealing with um somebody that um operated primarily in farsi and some of the farsi i think that they would regard the quran in farsi as having not been badly diluted Mm, okay. You know, but certainly we don't have the consonants. We just don't have the consonants in English to actually um, reflect um, the sound of the Quran being read. Mm. But that that sort of takes us back to Beelzebub's tales to his grandson that uh, you mentioned earlier. The idea of reading it aloud as one of the ways that Gurdjieff uh, describes how to approach the work, or, or actually technically, I think he says, to read as if allowed. He, he actually says to read as if allowed. Um, and you will, if you read something aloud, take a tale of uh, a page from the tales and read that aloud, or... <clears throat> alternatively take a page and read it as if allowed. you realize that those processes are slightly different? Yeah. But I, I have, I have, I will say that when I have read um, the tales aloud and to some extent as if allowed because I'm reading slowly and hearing it, that it really does change the way that uh, I think. I mean, it, it, it really is, tra- I found it transformative in that in order to read it aloud, in order to read it at all, your attention has to do something very different than what your attention does when I'm reading, let's say, a science fiction novel. Um, I have to hold uh, very long phrases and sentences. And when you read it aloud, 
I find that I have to intonate differently so that I can catch the levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and come back up and still have a sense of continuity of the whole totality that's been uh, suggested. And, such, and, and when I do that, it's almost as though my brain is less engaged and my feeling center is more engaged in the content because it's tonal. And I, I have the sense that that must in part come out of the way in which he, <clears throat> Gurdjieff, you know, was influenced so strongly by his father who was involved in uh, oral recitations of uh, stories and allegories and songs um, uh, from a long tradition. Well, he had that influence, so he he's more likely to have some knowledge of what can be achieved in that kind of situation. The... The, the reading out aloud as if, it, in the circumstance where you're reading out aloud to someone else or to uh, a, an assembled group, you're doing a number of things. First of all, you're taking the words off the page and you're pausing them. And because the text is really quite involved in many, many places, for a variety of reasons, including unfamiliar words, um, but it has a certain rhythm to it that you eventually um, start to notice. You realize that just in order to do a competent job of reading, you have to pause the sentence in such a way as to break down the meaning of the sentence. And when the sentence is 200 words long and there are such sentences in the tale, that's not an easy thing to do. No. And in order to read those sections, one actually needs to have read it before to have some idea already of what the work, mental work that you're not going to escape, you're going to have to do in order to read it. <coughs> For your intellectual center is engaged in parsing. Um, which is something that it can do. Your moving center is engaged. The moving center is what makes the voice box work. Uh, and air is passed over the vocal cords and so on. Um, in order for that to happen, it's known that if you think and they put a measuring device close to the voice box, you will be mouthing your thoughts. Right? So those two things are working together. That has been um, a, a device that does that has been created for the US Army for people in situations where they want to communicate but can't make a sound. Um, so this exists. This isn't a, a, a figment of anyone's imagination here. Um, then if if you are going to project the sound of um, uh, the words from the tales, you're going to have to try to inject the appropriate emotion into the words that you're um, repeating or reading out. So this is a three-centered activity that requires the active participation of all three centers. And it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. 
to read it as if out loud means that you actually have to represent an audience when there isn't one. Right. So to read it as if out loud um, to other people, it doesn't matter whether you make a sound or not doing that. What matters is that you represent that you have an audience. Mm. And that's putting yet one more demand upon the reader. <coughs> this is interesting. It's making me, uh, it's reminding me of, we have uh, we had a friend who's uh, deceased now for uh, 10 years. Name was Lee Loswick, had a, a spiritual community. It's still extant. Um, but I noticed in the last years of his life, when he'd give a public talk, sometimes he would he would he would start a story, or uh, uh, you know whatever whatever it is, whatever verbal formulation it is, he would start, and the and and there would be this apparently not discontinuous, but changes of direction over a, over a twenty minute period of time. Some of these got got. Uh, uh, published, you know, recorded and and, and published. Um, but the but the thing that always struck me was, at the end, you felt as if, at the end, he would always return to whatever point he had he had begun with, and there was a there was a trajectory. That you could that if you were paying attention, you could you get you had a you had a sense of a wholeness to the uh, to the uh, um, to the entirety of the thing and it, and and it's not at all dissimilar from what the, the phenomenon that you're describing with with uh, reading these incredibly um, difficult uh, sentences paragraphs pages in uh, in Beelzebub out loud yeah does the one of the things that we can add to that because I think it's um, it, 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 it's a curious demand that Gurdjieff's making. One of the things that we can add to this is that in the same way with the great playing of music and things like that, you really have to be a channel for what's going on in order to do this. Mm -hmm. Any kind of ego that emerges <clears throat> is going to get in the way. So you, you really have to drop it. You know, you, you, you aren't reading for applause. You're, you're reading because in some way or other it's necessary for this to be projected to a, an audience of people. That's why you're reading. You're not reading it for anything else. You're not trying to do anything other than get out of the way of the work of art that's being transmitted through you. Yeah, I, I this is I was thinking when we were talking of uh, my relationship to playing a piece of music, and and it's exactly yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because it's uh, it's a precise analogy. It's not like I'm reading something to get information. Uh, it's like I, there's a piece of music on the page which is a totality, and it's completely meaningless in its graphic form. But when there's a three centered engagement in the performing of the piece and to the extent that one gets out of the way, then something comes through that is uh, 
real and what it is. I mean, it's it's hard to <laughs> hard to say it qualified anymore, except that it's it's it has this complete integrity and it's available. I like the word integrity. It, I think this allows us to get um, back to the word objective, which is where we promised to go. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 problem with objective uh, in the way that it's used. In, so we we have to when we're using this word um, within the work or within the context of the work, we have to be very very careful about what we think we're saying. Hmm. When um, modern science, contemporary science, talks about objective fact, what it's really talking about is consensus. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, so so. That's their idea of objective. And if, um, let's say, I think of some kind of experiment and say, this has this result, right? And you can reproduce it and someone else can reproduce it. Enough reproduction of it is done, right? Then they say, objectively, when this is done and that is done, this happens, right? Um, that isn't how the term objective is used in, in the work. The, the idea of objective art, which Beelzebub's tales is presumed to be an example of, I certainly believe it is, and Gidget's movements are presumed to be an example of, and I also believe that to be true, is that they have exactly the same effect on everybody. Mm. It's objective because it can only produce one, re one result on everybody but according to level. So that according to level is uh, a important uh, <coughs> a qualification there because uh, presumably in, in this kind of work, one is striving to be able to separate within oneself that which is subjective and that which is objective. And so to the extent that one is successful in that, then one can partake of an objective experience without the associations that arise from one's subjective conditioning, much in the way that we've talked about uh, mentation by thought. So I guess the question I have is, what does it mean to say that um, it produces exactly the same effect, except insofar as it still depends on the capacity of the listener or the participant to enter into that level of objectivity. They have, to, they have to, well, I mean, let me give you an example because the example, and this for me was a, a revelatory experience. I was performing with a number of other people, uh, a particular movement, I think it's movement 21, but I can't be sure of the number which was called, the, the movement instruction at the time said, remorse for your parents. Uh, and this movement is very slow um, movement and it's very, um, very gentle in a way. 
we spent a week practicing to be able to do that movement and at the end of the week we did a performance of that movement and pretty much everybody got it very close to correct a number of people including myself came off the movement's floor in tears it made us cry hmm. now, I don't think that what we were talking about here is is, is people of equal uh, level in the work. We're just talking about people that went through the same thing and were able. You can't do a movement like that without abandoning yourself. Mm. You really can't. I mean, apart from anything else, you're trying to. It 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 moves in sixes, and you're actually supposed to bend on every fifth. Right. Mm. So your in, intellect needs to be entirely involved in making sure that you're doing the right thing the next movement you have to have a lot of attention it only requires people to have a lot of attention but it, in my opinion people will come off come off from doing that movement with tears in their eyes so in a sense the what i'm hearing is that the the even by design the 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 structure of the movement necessitates that those factors of subjectivity that I was alluding to actually are uh, not present or you couldn't do the movement. Yeah, that's, that would be correct, not present. Okay. There are various um, um, passages in the tales, this is not common either, which in contemplating them or reading them, it, it, it's just had a very specific impact on me that I don't know why. I just think the same thing is happening with that. Different things are working on you. You've got the rhythm of the words that is working on you. You've got the way that in some area you're trying to um, understand and digest the meaning. Um, but I think the same thing happens. It's objective and therefore it, it produces these common um, occurrences but according to level. And one of the things, you're not going to be able to read that book without doing a lot of philology. You're just not. You know, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, he, he talks about the law of falling and the law of catching up. Uh, and he says that's how um, uh, a moon revolves around a planet. Um, uh, it moves between the law of falling and the law of catching up. And the thing about that is that the words catching up have a particular meaning. And most people just don't know the meaning. The words catching up Sometime, I think, about the beginning of the 20th century, that term started to be used when discussing people who were running a race. Before that, it, it wasn't used to describe that at all. The, the word catching up meant holding something on high. 
Uh, and that meaning has almost been forgotten, but it, it hasn't been forgotten in the sense that it is a recorded meaning. And that's the meaning that he chose. Because that's what the law of catching up is about, the law of stuff being held on our. Um, therefore, in the moment. And, and you have that issue with reading the tales, is that you need to be careful of every word. Uh, and to try... Um, and work out why certain words were chosen. And in doing that, you're forced to go to the etymology of the words. And in doing that, the meaning of the text changes because you know what the words actually mean. And he's forcing you into doing, creating mentation by thought rather than mentation by form because you aren't allowed to stay with your formatory invented meaning for any of these words. You're going to have to go to one that actually you've thought through and put in relation to something else. See, he's asking the reader, he's asking a vast amount of um, effort from the reader. It just isn't entirely apparent because nobody, when they first picked that book up, certainly I didn't, had the least inkling of what he was asking for you to do. You, you, uh, you're reminding me that um, uh, one of the one of the questions I've had, um, because I've uh, uh, I've long had the conviction al along with you that uh, the etymological uh, efforts are necessary to make sense of of of, of the book. But um, but there's been an awful lot of development in in uh, the field. You used the word comparison earlier in our conversation, and um, and one of the things that uh, that brings up for me is the essential nature of metaphor in um, in language. Metaphor is uh, from the Greek to transfer. So, um, um, and uh, I've, I've, I recently reread a book that I'd read about it uh, 10 years ago called The Unfolding of Language by a guy named Guy Deutscher. And uh, one of the assertions in that book is that virtually, virtually all words, not all words, but virtually all words in English and other modern languages are what he calls dead metaphors. In other words, they were metaphors originally, and we forget, and over time, the populations that speak these words forget that it was a, that it was a metaphor. And, and, and so one of the things that, um, that, stru that struck me uh, when, I was, when I was looking at To Fathom the Gist Volume 3 is is that is that realization that that um, all almost all the words we use are um, metaphors no longer understood in the original way that they were used? I think that's very good. I don't know who you're talking about in terms of who wrote that, but that's very perceptive. I think mm -hmm. um, certainly it sounds to me very well, well worth um, studying that and thinking about. It. Yes. Oh, one of the things that's not realized is that 
Gurdjieff uses most of the um, um, allegorical metaphors from the New Testament in the tales. It's all there, or a lot of it is there. And most people simply don't see it. And because they don't see it, they've missed the language. You know, it, it, it's, you know, the, the talk in the New Testament of, you know, the use of the word mountain and hill, they always refer to a higher level. It's always that, you know. There's no question about it. Same in the tales. You know, it's always that, you know. When, when um, I mean, I think the, the use of the um, uh, town and country, it's, it's also the same in the tales. It's also the same in the New Testament. It's um, out of um, the normal um, uh, interactions of life. It's a country. The, the, and that's, you, you suddenly realize, and I mean, I think you, you pretty much nailed it in what you said, that an awful lot of our words are dead metaphors, but you know, I don't think they're irretrievably dead. I think you can revive them. So better um, to say paralyzed, I suppose, would be the thing to do. <laughs> I like that. That's a good metaphor. <laughs> we, we like um, it, it's it's a lot easier um, in terms of um, it's a lot easier in terms of trying to absorb the meaning of just one item, just one word. It's a lot easier to try and cast it in stone and say it means this and nothing but this. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not going to work with a book like The Tales to attempt to do that. It can work with books that only wanted you to have, you know, grasp one dimensional surface meaning to every word that was put on a page. It's not going to work with the tales. It's, it, it'd be hopeless um, to try and do that. The, I'm, I'm reminded of the meaning of the um, the parable in the um, New Testament of the woman taken in adultery. The, the allegorical meaning, my understanding, and this is what I arrived at, I didn't, don't think I read this from anyone else, but I'm just working with the way that I think the New Testament works. The woman caught in adultery is a, a person who is mixing two traditions. Hmm. They are therefore adulterating the two things that they are mixing. Uh -huh. right. um, it's a woman simply because that's a tendency of the emotional side to do things like that. And the reason that the emotional side does things like that is it lacks a kind of precision that the intellectual side has. So if it's not working with the intellectual side, um, it, 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 it can move in that direction. The people want to stone her. The stone is dogma. 
And throughout the New Testament, the meaning of the word stone is dogma. And of course, dogma is, is exactly this meaning that's frozen in place. So Christ is almost, it's almost a laughable thing to say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because the man without sin will not even pick up a stone. Because the man without sin is the man who's <clears throat> not missed the mark. The man who has um, uh, an understanding. If he has an understanding, he doesn't. He doesn't um, truck with dogma. So this is the meaning of the woman caught in adultery. And you need to have that kind of thinking to look up to try to understand the text because it's all of that ilk. There's um, an allegorical meaning that is way, way deeper than the literal meaning. I will uh, say that particularly in volume three of To Fathom the Gist, where you really turn your attention on demonstrating how to read a section of uh, the early part of uh, the tales. In this, in this case, you focus a lot on the initial introductory or quasi-introductory chapter, The Arousing of Thought. And I was struck by how, as you described one of the stories within that, the story of the Transcaucasian Kurd, you demonstrate a lot of these elements uh, very effectively without telling someone the answer, because I don't think you can tell someone the answer because so much of this is based on a holistic constant, yeah, if you will. But but you do you you show how things that I took for granted in that story of the of this Kurd who's coming from the country and going into the town is could be understood allegorically in the way that you're describing that the you know, the, the space of the country and the space of the town represent very different parts of our psychic experience. And something is, there's a movement there and, and a movement back and a uh, unfortunate experience with some very powerful impressions that um, also serve as a allegory for our relationship to effort and the work. And I... I can't say, you know, for certain whether, you know, it's right. Uh, and I don't even think that you're trying to assert that it's right so much as if you read it this way, you will, it will be very, a very different experience than reading it literally, which I realize in going through your book, I had a tendency to do, even if I had the impression that I was not doing that so much as I was doing. And that's why I appreciate that. The the thing that I found disheartening, you see, I wrote To Fathom the Gist, Volume 1. Um, I wrote that to tell people how to read the tales, to give them a way to do that. Um, it, a lot of those, uh, a lot of that books, I don't know how many it sold, probably about five or 600 copies. It sold a lot of copies. <clears throat> but I never met anybody that read it that had actually come into the situation of being able to put much of it into practice. So I wrote a second book, which was to take it even deeper in terms of how did he write it? 
you know, if this is how he wrote, wrote it, how did he read it? That, I mean, there was somebody that contacted me from South America that said that, you know, that that, that book changed the way that they could read the tales and it made a difference to them. But even so, there were very few people affected by that. So the third volume was, look, I'll show you. Right? Here, see what I've done. Right? Notice how painstaking it was in order to get to that. You know, notice that we looked at two versions. Notice that I involved, that I took a look at, because we're talking about at the beginning, um, also the Herald of the Coming Good. I went and tried to find everything, but look, I've gone and done all of this, and this is what emerges, and not necessarily everything that's there, but this emerges, right? And you never saw that, and you can do this. Um, um, I have no idea if it's going to make a difference. Part of me is inclined to actually spend the rest of my life just doing details, explanations of the tales, chapter by chapter, and then meeting the remarkable men, you know, and then life is real, because one of the interesting things about meeting the remarkable men is that if you haven't read the tales properly, you can't read that properly. You actually can't. He's using the same images. He's using images that he established in the tales in order to tell the stories in that book. But you just don't see it because it's not obvious. Yeah, but I will I will say uh, uh, that Meetings with the Remarkable Men is the first book of Gurdjieff's I, wrote, I read uh, when I was in college. A friend of mine had read it and... Uh, I think he was particularly impressed with the material question in the end. Uh, and so I read the book and I'd read a little of Spinsky before and I just found it kind of stultifying. Um, you know, it, it was the promise of information, but I couldn't get my head around it ultimately. But when I read uh, Meetings of the Remarkable Men, it, it uh, enlivened something in me that was the occasion later for me when I ran into my teacher to recognize my teacher. And even though I understand now that I got nothing out of that book in the, in the, at the level we're talking about, there was something that was still imparted, a feeling. And, and, that, and, and so to your earlier point, it's hard to know what this, either the power of this, these, these works work on many different levels. And you're describing, I mean, people have been touched by the tales without applying your method, but your method <clears throat> to me is a way of going much, much deeper, making it much more of a, uh, a richer, deeper experience than what people may have experienced up until this point. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's very difficult to me now how many people it will work for. I mean, but of course, it, in a sense, it doesn't matter because if it works for just a few people, that that's something because this book has proved so difficult. It, it's worth saying, um, most people who've read, who've read Meetings with Remarkable Men, it, it's, it, it's really interesting to discuss um, some parts of it, you know, 
I remember reading that book, and I was very, I know, possibly when it first came out, a very long time ago, I remember reading it and thinking it was an adventure story, you know. Um, I also remember this strange trip through the Gobi Desert where they all um, make these stilts. Stilts, yeah. (laughs) Most of the people that I talked to, this is a long time ago, but I'd read that and I'd talked to other people that read that. And most people thought that when he when he was relating this about the stills, that it was true. (laughs) (laughs) And and that in some way or other, sandstorms only, they just stop about 20, (laughs) 25 feet in the air. Above that, there is no sand. Those are people that have never seen a sandstorm that could believe that. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people that have seen the sandstorms will probably have read that and just assumed it was true because it was written in a particular way. Um, it, it's curious because that's a particularly <coughs> important part of the book because it's it's talking about how to deal with the problems of the emotional center. So one of the things that that. Um in this conversation and and, uh, and looking at uh, your volume three um, is is a comparison with the long-standing uh, Christian practices and often contemplative practices of rereading, say, the Book of Psalms as a practice or the breviary uh, uh, that priests and deacons, I'm reminded of it because I have a, a first cousin who's about to be ordained a Catholic deacon. Oh. And, um, uh, and, and of course, uh, Lectio Divina, the practice of, of reading sacred texts in general um, in order to get something. But one of the things that strikes me about the utility of, of your volume three here is that um, in so far as I'm aware, and I, I'll confess that I, that, I, that I was never in a uh, religious seminary, I didn't receive um, that kind of religious training. So I don't really know uh, what's going on there, what has been traditionally recently going on there. But I can't help but think that a lot of it is mechanical. A lot of the rereading of the, of the Psalms until you just keep doing it again and again and again, maybe then a different, a different arena is accessed. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I do know that, that, that I think it's been a useful thing for you to create this book where you're actually demonstrating how to do um, the kind of uh, close reading is a is an understatement um, for what you're for the processes that you are suggesting will reward people when they engage in them when encountering Gurdjieff's writing. So. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just struck by that, by this comparison between 
the sort of the sort of uh, thing that Christians at least have been doing for centuries, and um, and and I don't really know to what extent um, the uh, the rereading of, of a text like the Psalms uh, can offer to people. I've re- I've read books where people cl- uh, understand they they seem to report an emotional. Um, response. I don't think they're doing the sort of um, thing that you're suggesting here on the intellectual side, at least, um, or thinking well, side. I mean, let's let's we we have to in in somewhere have a, a or other we have to um, try to make sense of these things in in terms um, where. There is the possibility that the behavior was once meaningful, even if it isn't there. Right. Of course. So the way that I think of it, I have no idea. This is my construction, so I have no idea. But I've talked to this with others, and they've um, thought that maybe this is so. We're trying to get into a certain set of vibrations. We're trying to create a certain set of vibrations within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in attempting to do that, we're looking to strike a note that's a perfect note. And if we strike that note, it, it will create resonance in harmonics that are higher than we are. And, and that will bring down to us uh, a reward. So it could be that one is, you know, me, I've, for instance, been told that really if you're going to do any of the um, prayers, Christian prayers, you should be doing them in Greek. Hmm. Well, there is really nothing in terms of the meaning of the Christian prayers, you know, uh, in a lot of the things that are repeated. There's nothing in the meaning between if you were taking the Greek and trying to deduce the, the meaning as a Greek, a uh, person who understands Greek and anything else, but the sound of Greek is different. Uh, and therefore, it may be that the sound of Greek is necessary to create that note that would create a resonance at a higher level. So, I think that, you know, I think that it's interesting, for example, that Gurdjieff had the tales read out and watched people's reaction to it. And and no other book has ever been written that I am aware of that anyone did that. Mm -hmm. But but he, he had it read out in German and Russian and English and French. The French book was never completed and neither the Russian, but he observed the behavior of the audience. I think he's looking for specific vibrations that arise. I don't think he's looking for someone sitting there and it being coming obvious that they just got the meaning of the last sentence. I think he's looking for certain vibrations. I think that the tales was written so that it had a certain kind of rhythm to it when you mm. read it out. And that that is part of it. 
and therefore you could it, it you you could theorize that even the meaningless repetition as long as the repetition was correct in terms of the meter and the sound um could have some impact i think that's really interesting i i uh um a, a, a weak comparison would be when i was when i was a kid i i uh, became a catholic altar boy and i had to offer the i learn i memorized the latin responses in the mass and uh, to my great chagrin after two years the catholic church decided to change the mass uh, to the so-called vulgar languages so i had to re-memorize all the uh, responses in english and I, and i didn't like having to do the extra effort but i but there's an absolutely different feel to the responses in latin yeah and the responses in english it's uh, i mean it was and and today when i when i you know on those uh, occasions when i go into a uh, to a catholic mass for whatever reason um uh man the uh the the vibrational level is not what it used to be even when no one uh, no one had the intention to create a higher vibration nevertheless something something was there was a different quality present it seemed to me yeah i mean i've observed a, a similar i mean um i used to go when i was in london when i lived in london i used to go occasionally to watch the performance by the bar choir of saint matthew's passion mm. and it is extremely uplifting music mm-hmm. and it's very difficult not to be affected by that but for me you know i don't know why exactly it's a, a complete audience um and i just think that that's true that at a certain point in time somebody created something uh it was of a high level at some point in time somebody takes over and decides to change it without any knowledge of what the impact of that change will be because they never created it and it may well be that the the latin mass that you were familiar with was already a degraded thing from a greek mass that came before it right you know yeah. you know but but you at least were able to resonate on the level of that and then to detect that it it, it descended once again it's interesting as we speak about this we uh sometime last year we interviewed neil douglas klotz who's a uh sufi teacher and writer but also has done a lot of work with uh Aramaic and he translated the uh, he had this what he describes as something of a revelation at some point where he was inspired by uh something higher really to translate or to publish the Aramaic version of the Lord's prayer and then to engage people in chanting it and to uh, performing it and it's very it's interesting to the he says that the the language itself forces a kind of breathing yep. when you're d- doing this prayer that is is just completely uh transformative and different than 
reading it out in a translation in English. And, and, and so it's like that, that was the original language that it was written in. Yeah, this is true. And the, uh, the Old Testament was written in the form of Aramaic as well. And, and they, the evidence is, but this is only hearsay, if you like, but the evidence is that they knew that stuff. And we don't, you know. Um, I'm willing to believe, I mean, one of the interesting, you know, there are a number of things that are part of Christianity that are deeply interesting in the sense that something objective lurks there, you know, mm. and the Lord's Prayer is one of those things. I mean, uh, you know, I can walk through the Lord's Prayer and, and show the ray of creation in it. You know, um, the Sermon on the Mount is another of those things. The Sermon on the Mount, if examined in the original Greek, has a completely different meaning to the English meaning, hmm. um, which is curious, you know, because the English meaning impacts an awful lot of people, you know, and, and we, again, we're in the same situation, it, it has descended. When I deal with anything in the Bible, I go to the King James, not because I know much about it, other than the people that did that translation, people of a high level, and therefore they did their best when taking something and putting it into a different language, which is tough, you know. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the way that one breathes uh, is uh, going to be determined by the um, sounds that are coming out of your mouth. Yeah, but I and I think going back to all and everything that uh, again that that capacity of reading it aloud and the the necessity of breathing to be a part of that process because if you are doing a two hundred word sentence, how do you how do you uh, how do you get that out without a careful modulation of breath? Well, I guess you don't. I mean the. the the reality is that if you know you're reading that, you take a deep breath before you go. <laughs> that, that is the case. But I, I don't actually know because it, 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 it's like when you're doing something like that, the one thing that you haven't got enough attention for is to actually observe yourself while you're doing it. All of the attention has been, you know, has, has been uh, greater and greater demands placed on it. And the idea that you could also stand back and observe um, may be possible for other people of a higher level than me, but I, I would not be able to do that. Well, again, I think of my uh, experiences with my uh, music practice and working with a, a master of the Japanese bamboo flute. You know, the practice is all about him insisting that I pay about yeah, attention to about 10 or 15 different things going on in my body at once. And it's like the mind can't keep up, but the mind is quite busy and it gets out of the way because there's no room for uh, ego at that point. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's in a way that's a similar thing. You know, you can't to really be present for that text. You ha as you said, you have to, uh, let go and, and become a channel. Yeah, it, it, it's good. But I mean, but this is, the, in, in a sense, this this is a very interesting um, place for us to arrive at because, you know, the, 
the whole of the work really is is based upon um, understanding of levels. And it is the case that occasionally, for instance, in the movements when a demand is made over you that is impossible for you to normally do, if energy of a particular high level runs through you, not only can you do it, but you can do it perfectly. And it, it isn't, you wouldn't say you were doing it easily. Easy doesn't enter into it. it. It's just something you can do, which previously you couldn't. You yeah. Know, you don't think like that. You just are something different. Um, and, and that's, I mean, we can go on to objective. We can use that as a segue to objective science. You know. I was just uh, thinking this, we yeah, only so have we, about that, 10 minutes be, left. Yeah, we've, well, we've got about, uh, yeah, 20 minutes. 20 so. minutes, sorry. We will, we will yeah. set the table for the next conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the issue with objective science is it, it's necessary to start again. Um, it, it's hard to get to this point, and therefore, you know, I had to do an awful lot of um, investigation at a very fundamental level to come to the conclusion that, yes, you really do have to start again means that you have to dismiss the whole of modern science. Mm -hmm. right? You have to dismiss every single theory and hypothesis in modern science and just set it to one side. Because you, you, it, it's only going to get in the way and here's why. It's fundamental to objective science that everything is alive. Mm. It, it's fundal, uh, fundamental to contemporary science that the only things that are alive are things that are biological in nature. And their life is uh, contingent on the material in a, in a way that... Uh, yeah, well, yes, they, there's, a, there's a constraint on the energies that they might consider as being involved in life, but as they mm -hmm. can't protect a lot of them, they're not going to worry about accommodating them because they don't see them anyway. Yeah. Right. So... As soon as you actually go there, you immediately, you, you've just discarded from modern science, the whole of astrophysics, the whole lot's gone. You know, because from a perspective of objective science, the universe is a living thing. Galaxies are living things. Suns are living things. Planets are living things. And even moons are living things. They are things that are alive. Because they're alive, they have the capability of making choices. And the idea, if injected into anywhere in astrophysics, that a planet would make a choice to do something, would be regarded as completely absurd. Not to mention a galaxy. <laughs> well, you know, the, I mean, that's the other thing is that the way that the work talks about a galaxy and the way that science talks about a galaxy is completely different. Right? You, you could say that we're talking about the same phenomenon because the, the astronomers look into the sky with their telescopes and they see, you know, somewhere beyond the Milky Way, they see a cluster of things that are shaped in such a way as to <laughs> indicate to them that there's a lot of stars here all together. Right? and they refer to those as a galaxy. 
their idea of a galaxy is a lot of stars moving in a particular pattern, and many of them surrounded with planets, and those planets possibly having moons. They don't see anything more than that in a galaxy. They're therefore reducing a galaxy to what is deducible and visible. If there were a, an energy that was not um, that was higher than, let's say, light. Let's just call it higher, vibrated at a higher rate than light. From the perspective of the work, we would expect such a thing to exist within the galaxy, but modern science would not expect that at all. It would think that the only thing that a galaxy is a collection of suns, right? Which is almost the same as saying, in fact, it's pretty much equivalent to saying that you are not Rob Schmidt at all, you're just a collection of cells. And the only thing that I can deduce about you is there's just a big heap of cells over there. <laughs> that moves in particular ways. There's <laughs> a black hole in the middle. Yeah, right. <laughs> Indeed. You know, so the, 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 the picture of the universe, um, and I will... I will do this and as soon as I get onto time we'll probably use up the rest of the time we've got but the number of cells in a person's body is in the area of trillions some people say tens of trillions it almost doesn't matter that's the order of magnitude it's trillions the number of suns in a galaxy is the same order of magnitude. So in respect of suns, the relationship of a galaxy as a living thing, a sun is simply a cell in its body. It's nothing more than that. Right? Suns are thus in the same way that you lose millions of skin cells every day, they die. You know, these various suns in these in these galaxies are, in some regularity, just dying off. You know, others are growing in some way. <coughs> so we have something of the order of relation between a cell and a man happening in the relationship between a sun and a galaxy, and then we have the same the number of galaxies believed to exist that have been observed is in the order of trillions. So a galaxy in the life of the universe itself is just like a cell in relation to um, a body. And therefore a sun is on the level of an atom in relation to a cell. So we're dealing with vast differences there at the top of what's called the ray of creation. Now, the, there's a lot that's said about time in the tales that a lot of people find confusing. And there are things that are said by Gurdjieff and by Spensky about time. I've recently come to the conclusion that time is breath. Is breath? 
Yeah. Hmm. This isn't a new day. It's something that Gurdjieff says, Ruspensky quotes him as saying, but I've come to uh, the conclusion that that's actually just a statement of fact that Gurdjieff is making there. Is that our lives are measured by our breath. And the lives of any con the life of any cosmos is measured by its breath. The um in a book on yoga I read recently, they suggested that if you slowed your breathing down to a rate of um, about five every minute instead of about 15 every minute, you would live to be beyond the 100. You would just extend your life. I've had a yoga teacher who made exactly the same assertion to me. I think it's probably true. Um, so what happened in the creation, according to Beelzebub's tales, the story that's told there, it's not told in In Search of the Miraculous, but it is told there. What happened was that the existence of the absolute was somehow threatened. And it was time that threatened it. Now, the, the text actually states that the, the size was, it was diminishing in volume, gradually diminishing in volume. I interpret that to meaning that there was breathing. Mm, breathing out. I see. And that in order for um, the absolute to um, implement his own immortality, it was necessary for him to exclude that from his abode. And in doing that, he created a universe where everything eats everything else and everything breathes. And the only thing that doesn't breathe is a sum absolute. That is, there will be some kind of feeding that you might want to describe as breathing, but it no longer is limited in the number of times it can repeat. The point of the difference between the universe and everything below it is that it is not limited by time but galaxies are limited by time suns are limited by time planets moons everything that's biological is limited by time and that limit is in the breathing so what did it, what was necessitated the creation of time in order to, um, or what necessitated the exclusion of time, to put it in the language that you use, to... Uh, the, the, he, he was actually looking, his, he was actually mortal. His position was one of mortality in relation to time. So he ejected time from his abode, and that was his solution. But the, the problem was that it was necessary for... In order for him to do that, it was necessary for him to suffer. And he, it, it, you see, it's in other traditions. It's in, in the Judaic tradition, God breathes into mm -hmm. to create life. His breath is, you know, one aspect of all living things is that they breathe. 
you know, the, the question that's more interesting in, in terms of how we square this with um, objective science is when you get down to how rocks breathe, how planets breathe, how suns breathe, it, things that are beyond our normal sphere and therefore we don't easily understand. So there's some kind of breathing that's going on at a planetary level. The breath is probably day and night. You know, that's a comment that Spensky makes. But there's no breathing going on at the high level. But the information about breathing is all going back there. Two things return, I think, to the absolute. And again, this is just me surmising. I, I've yet to reach a conclusion, but two things. The perception, our perceptions become in some way or other perceptions that contribute to the absolute's perception of the universe somehow in some small way. And our breathing contributes to the absolute's survival. Well, the part, the part about um, our perceptions contributing to the perception of the uh, of the absolute makes makes uh, a deep and profound sense to me just based on my own experience of practice over the years um, because I've I've um, you know something along those lines maybe not stated quite the way you said it um, was asserted to me early in my training and I've taken it to be a uh, uh, a point of view that that I'm continuing to explore but so far um, everything <laughs> my, my conclusion would have to be oh yeah that's how that's how it works yeah I mean it's like how could it be otherwise well yeah, keep, keep so, I mean, you, you know as soon as um, I, our problem is that we live on a particular scale and our particular scale we manifest in a particular way and we see the things around us in a particular way and we have no way of knowing what the manifestation of a planet is on its own level mm -hmm. or a sun or a, a moon or any of those things are on their own level right. you know, and what the distinctions can be we don't know um, and and because of that, we actually have to, in one way or another, start to speculate in order to try and envisage that. But there are um, certain things we experience. So, one of the one of the statements of the work, which is repeated in every or most traditions that I've ever encountered, which is "as above, so below." Mm -hmm. it, without the idea of as above so below it's impossible to actually try to envisage any level that's seriously higher or seriously lower and unless we think of the cell in our own terms there's nothing that we can say about the life of the cell no we we don't know um, and and it starts to become quite difficult actually 
I started looking at the behavior of cells recently, just investigating, uh, gathering scientific information, scientific data about cell behavior. Uh, and the interesting thing is that, oh, the interesting thing for me was that I was looking for the evidence of plasma. Mm. Right. Now, we understand form most easily in terms of things that are solid, and those are could be described as crystalline. Right. But we wouldn't deny that liquids have form mm -hmm. and behavior, and that liquids can actually, in one way or another, be part of a structured environment. And we're also aware that that gases can have form and they can be part of a structured environment because we breathe in air right so we're aware of that but we're not particularly aware of plasma in the nature of man in the nature of biology or actually in the nature of the universe but insofar as we must presume that there is structure in solid liquid and gaseous matter there must be structure in plasma if there's no structure in plasma there can be nothing higher than rocks surrounded by um gaseous masses i suppose there can be nothing higher than that because there's no form beyond it So the question of is there a God can be approached through the question of is there form in plasma and how does that happen? Mm. And this is, so we have in the work ideas like, oh, a person has personality and there's something called essence that's higher and that essence uh, supposedly leaves the body at death and so accidentally and so actually does personality the question is what is the form of personality and where does it go what is the form of essence and where does it go because it must have a form otherwise it would just dissipate yeah so the question is what is the form in respect of plasma that makes up essence. We don't care that much about personality. That's destined in the theory of the work for the moon anyway. Right? But the question is, what's this essence? And what form does it have? And then we ask the question, well, what is the form of God? It has to be plasma or a higher level. Because the highest part of us is plasma. So that's probably the perfect point to <laughs> Draw this to a close. Time uh, being, yeah. time, time is uh, is still a factor in our um, yes. particular realm. We've reached we've reached the uh, the uh, apex here. So, right. uh, but I, I'll I'll just close by. Um, I, I, I'm not asserting that this is true, but I just read. I thought it was a very funny um, uh, way to say something which was um, that the higher your vibe, the smaller your tribe. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, I like yeah. that too. Yeah, probably true as well. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to continuing this conversation on objective science in a, another uh, 
uh, session sometime soon because it seems like there's some very interesting material here. And Yeah, I, I think when I've written that book, I'll be pleased for you to read it because I think that, I mean, both of you, but particularly you, Stuart, because you've got background in physics. Um, and you might have, you know, various bits of knowledge that have come from that that could help paint um, uh, more of the picture. Yeah, well, I've certainly have shared your interest in uh, looking at uh, what I might call countercultural science. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, was early on realized that the the traditional picture is very, very incomplete. So, yeah, it's true, it's incomplete. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's all that needs to be said because we can't offer anything better right now. Yeah. But maybe something better can emerge, I guess. Yeah. Well, Robin, thank you again. It's been a delightful conversation. It's been a lot of fun. So and we, uh, and I appreciate uh, getting to interrogate you about this yeah. stuff. It's fun. <laughs> Good. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Robin Bloor, author of To Fathom the Gist, Volume 3, The Arousing of Thought. In this book, Robin demonstrates a method of reading and comprehending the contents of G.I. Gurdjieff's masterwork, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Robin leads a group, the Austin Gurdjieff Society in Austin, Texas. Aside from the usual movements and work activities, the group specializes in the study of Gurdjieff's writings and the study of objective science as articulated by Ospensky in In Search of the Miraculous and by Gurdjieff in The Tales. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Hirsch Wilson, author of Firefighter Zen, A Field Guide to Thriving in Tough Times. Hirsch is a 30-year veteran volunteer firefighter EMT with the Hondo Fire Department in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. He is also a storyteller committed to explaining how first responding can change how we see and experience our own lives. In his real job, he is a writer, speaker, and consultant. In the past 25 years, Hirsch has worked extensively with leadership teams from a variety of organizations including Kodak, IBM, Japan, Altria, the United States Postal Service, the CIA, Kraft Foods, and Baxter Healthcare, to name a few. He has co-written three national business bestsellers with Larry Wilson, including the award-winning Playing to Win, Choosing Growth Over Fear in Work and in Life. His latest project, based on 30 years as a volunteer firefighter, is helping individuals and organizations see the world as a firefighter does and to learn how to thrive through traumatic and stressful times. Hirsch attended Colorado College and graduated with a BA in English from the University of Minnesota. Prior to becoming a writer and consultant, Hirsch was a dancer and actor. He performed in Canada, Switzerland, and the United States. He has also worked as a flight instructor and commercial pilot. Finally, he is obsessed with dogs. The Wilsons currently have two large Bernese mountain dogs, Nellie and Tank, and one rescue terrier chihuahua named Maisie. He writes a monthly column on dogs for the Santa Fe New Mexican. Tune in for that show on Saturday, August 22nd from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.